Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. You're listening to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Firm Network. The Management of Savagery. Building up. Welcome to the Art of War Gaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. Today's episode is about building up your community or local group, whether it be for physical or mental war gaming. But before we get into that, I actually was able to do some war gaming this last weekend. I find myself fully vaccinated, and I have another buddy who is likewise so. And we got together, and I, I, we hung out for like three days. It's been forever since I've seen somebody outside my immediate household for anything other than like appointments and that sort of thing. So I was just absolutely thrilled to see him. And we spent like three days just, you know, fighting and playing with the lightsabers that I'm supposed to use for a video at some point. And of course, doing some mental intellectual wargaming. We were playing Kill Team. Neither of us has, of course, been able to play much over the last year, and so we didn't want to just jump right into a 2,000-point game that seemed overly ambitious for what we were what we were dealing with. And especially since I am new to the Gene Stealers, I kind of wanted to get a feel for them, but on a, a, a smaller scale, to just kind of figure out uh, the, the ideas and the general approach that one needs to take when you're playing a Gene Stealer cult army. And he brought over a variety of different Blood Angels lists. One of them was some Vanguard veterans. He had one that was entirely composed of scouts, some of them melee, some of them snipers, uh, a Primaris scout mix, and then a Terminator list. The Terminator list, of course, was like three models, but they were they were really scary for, for Gene Stealers anyways. So he got to play three games, and the first one he won handily. And I realized that I was not taking my own advice from this very show. Because the Gene Stealers and Space Marines are absolutely an asymmetrical setup. The Gene Stealers have numbers in most cases, but the Space Marines are superior. Uh, they hit they hit pretty good, they've got good saves, they're pretty tough. So all these kind of factors combined make a Space Marine a really, really tough fight for just a baseline Gene Stealer. So that first fight did not go so well. I did not use anything regarding local numeric superiority. I went basically one-to-one against his guys and lost handily. I also forgot that both Kill Team and 40k are objective-based. You don't have to kill all of your opponents. You just have to kill enough to keep them off of the objective so you can score. So that first game, I really, really looked at it critically. And like I said, I realized... I had completely failed to take advantage of local numeric superiority, and I had hit them in three successive waves. There was one group of of guys who had gotten the advance off of the scout 
phase. And then there was another one, my veteran, who I advanced up with them. Then there was a secondary wave because I kept a bunch of dudes back on my own objectives and sent everybody else forward. And then those ones went forward. And so there were basically three successive waves against Space Marines. And they crushed me. They absolutely crushed me. And so I came back with a different strategy the next game. The next game I was going against his Terminators. And that was a tough prospect. I knew I was not going to bring them down in close combat unless there was some sort of miracle. And my rending claws got all sixes for, for wounds every single time. I didn't feel like I was going to do well against them in that way. So in that particular game, I played Evade and just went after objectives. I engaged them just enough to keep them occupied and to keep them where I wanted them. And then the rest of my forces were free to pursue the objectives. Much like our, uh, our uh, I was about to say our friend, but he's, he's not really our friend. Our author, Abu Bakr Naji, recommends. So that game went pretty well. And the third game was basically a mirror of that second one. I was just kind of honing the idea of local numeric superiority and engaging the forces just enough in order to pursue the other objectives and to kind of pull him out of position so that that was easier for me. So it was nice. It was really nice to get to game with my buddy TF. It was really nice to, to finally break the fast that I have had from actual war gaming. I love the books. Don't get me wrong. I love reading these books. I love taking the notes. I love doing this show. But there's a reason it's called The Art of Wargaming. And that's because it's supposed to be talking about mm, wargaming. Thanks, COVID. Anyways, really enjoyed my games with TF. Like I said, they were very helpful for determining kind of the way I want to play Gene Stealers in the future. And so we're going to just start moving it up. Next game, we're going to do like a 200-point kill team. And then we're going to move to a 500-point Warhammer game, and then just kind of move up from there until we're sitting pretty at 2000 with an understanding of how to play our forces. TF has been playing Blood Angels since he got into Warhammer, so for him, he doesn't really need to adjust too much. Just adjust to kind of the new rules and some of the new units he has access to. But for me, I'm playing an entirely new army, and it was this is going to be extremely helpful. So I hope you all are able to to get together with your crew and do your physical or intellectual wargaming, whatever it might be, because it's outstanding to get to see your favorite people once again. This episode on building up is its extremely useful. There's a lot of really, really good advice in here, and I found that a lot of this directly applies. Now, I've done this several different times, this, this idea of building a community and then built it up and then I've also observed it. We've mentioned on here before that I started a after-school physical wargaming group at my high school when I was a senior. Now I look back and I think, what, what did I say or what did I do that convinced the school officials to let me start a fight club on school property with school money? But I, whatever it was, it was a, a serendipitous moment because like I said, that program is still going. I'm extremely proud of my students and of all the work that they do. And so I had to start that and then build it up from the ground. The Great Hunt was another thing like that. It's an organization that is basically like Xbox achievements for Belagarth specifically. And it's just a measure, a way of measuring your prowess and being able to compare it against other people. I had gotten tired of people being like, I'm the coolest. No, I'm the coolest. And having no real way to prove it 
And so that's why I set up this system of trials and the system of challenges in order to kind of let people be more qualified and more be able to quantify their skill a little bit better. And that was excellent. Again, that's still going strong. Uh, this last year, we were supposed to have a resurgence. There was a lot of people who were really eager to do trials. And then all of the events were canceled. So we're going to ride that wave into the next season. In addition to all this, I was around when Stygia was first founded and was starting to be built up. I think it had been founded like a year or two before I started. And a lot of the problems that we've discussed previously and that we're going to discuss in this next uh, episode were really prevalent there. The isolation, the lack of local, the lack of support, the extremely centralized nature of what we were doing, that was a lot of challenges. There were a lot of challenges thrown at our leaders, uh, particularly at Sumatai, who was the one who came up here uh, to establish it. He had been in Nashville previously, came here, he and his wife Juniper and their kind of core crew established this realm in the middle of nowhere. And it was really impressive to watch them do it. Now, of course, not everything was perfect. We've had to go through and rewrite the bylaws, but that's not because the bylaws were bad to begin with. It's just because there wasn't as many issues then as there is now. There always needs to be alterations to rules, to documents, to suit the current state of whatever group that you're in. So that, that was excellent. I really enjoyed watching that. And I'm very happy that it went well, because that means that we have the realm that we do today, which we have to thank to those, those early founders. And finally, this isn't a huge thing, but I did kind of organize a group club here. We've talked about it a little bit before, the Black Lotus Sector, which is, in a lot of ways, a tournament prep club. We adhere to the rules almost to the T. We do both the Warhammer rules and the ITC rules. And this enabled us to try to prep for other tournaments. And while we haven't been able to go to many yet, we are prepared rules-wise for when we are able to coordinate. So in these ways, I was kind of able to look at the material that we see in this section and, and really be able to say, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. So, so I would recommend if you're trying to build up a community or establish a community, this episode is going to very much serve you. And finally, I know that when we began this series, I was going to be basically comparing and contrasting the asymmetrical nature of the war to, to look at what the inferior forces wanted to do and what the conventional forces were trying to do to thwart them. But for this episode, both sides had excellent, excellent advice on community building. So I just decided to combine it. And I was very, very surprised that uh, the one field manual I'm using, the Operations in Low Intensity Conflict, it had some extremely good advice on leadership and on establishing some sort of organization in a place that is driven by conflict by nature. With no further ado, let us now move on to our first section where we discuss the concept of egg. For today's episode, we're going to be talking about the concept of EGG. Now, I don't mean sunny side up or scrambled. This is an acronym, which anybody who's ex-military, you know that we love making anything we absolutely can into an acronym, and this is no different. It stands for Establish, Govern, and Gains. 
and relates specifically to what we're talking about for this uh, section of the book. Now, as I mentioned before, this is not going to be like normal. This is not going to be the this side versus this side. Both of them provide very good frameworks for leadership and establishment. So I, I thought that I'd just kind of combine the advice into one large uh, chunk of things. The first part of egg, which is establish, you need to understand who is your target audience? Who are you trying to bring in? Because it doesn't matter what community you're a part of, whether you're a part of a physical wargaming community or an intellectual wargaming community, either way, you need people. Because it is very boring to be playing games against yourself. I know, I've tried it. And unfortunately, you know what your opponent will do next. So, we have to build communities. We have to have people around, people who want to play these games with us, who want to see us on a regular basis. So, how do you start building one of those communities? How do you establish a wargaming community? Well, like I said, first you have to figure out who your target audience is. Who's around? Are you in a college town where you're going to get a, a large number of college students that can come in? Do you have a large number of high schools with after-school programs that you might be able to recruit high schoolers? Are you a large city? Do you have any sort of uh, subculture that is powerful? These, these are all contributing factors as to who you're trying to pull in and where they're centered around. These are going to be different whether you're physical wargaming or intellectual wargaming. For instance, going to the gym and recruiting there, yes, makes sense for physical wargaming. Not so much for intellectual wargaming. Going down to the Games Workshop store and networking with other wargamers, uh, particularly Warhammer players there, would work extremely well for intellectual wargaming, but not as well for the physical. Though we have plenty of wargamers who also do Belagarth. Again, it really depends on who you're looking for and where you're going to find them, because they're the ones that you need to be uh, trying to recruit into what you're doing. So when you are recruiting, you do need to remember that there are certain phases to recruitment, and these ones are outlined by Naji. The first one is meeting the needs of the people. And for what we do, that means providing things like water, which is important for both. I see people drinking a lot of soda pop during Warhammer games. And while that is absolutely their prerogative, this is a free country and most of the places that y'all are listening from are also free countries. So if you want to drink Mountain Dew, you can do that. I find that my body feels better and that I think better if I don't have all that stuff in my system. If I just have good old fashioned water to revitalize me. And this is good for everybody. Again, even in a uh, intellectual wargaming situation, I always bring water. Obviously, in a physical wargaming situation, water is even more important, particularly in warmer climes, where you have a chance of any sort of heat-related injury occurring. So if you're providing this, as the person who's trying to organize it, if you're providing this service, that encourages people to come. Because that's something, that's a need they don't have to meet elsewhere. They can get that where you are. The next one would be meds, if they're required. I know that just about every physical war gamer that I can think of at least knows somebody with a med pack that has your basics, your, your bandages, your band-aids, some ibuprofen, some Benadryl, just the, the easy stuff. You don't need to have a full surgical kit to qualify for this one. Just having the basics, just having enough to either treat very minor issues or to tide somebody over until they can get to a real 
place, a real hospital where they can receive treatment. It may not be as important for this in intellectual wargaming, but it still occurs. You can still get headaches. You can still uh, have allergy issues. And so it's not a bad idea to have these on hand. Again, not nearly as imperative to do so, but yeah, I've always got some ibuprofen when I go to games because my legs get tired and sore. You're standing on your feet for hours. Eventually, painkillers is not a bad idea. So that is just another thing that people don't have to bring themselves that you can provide. And then optionally, there's food. I know many gaming groups that there's like a potluck that goes on every time people come together. Somebody brings this, somebody brings that, and they, they make this, this meal together out of it. Now, I would want that meal to be decently healthy, and that might just be me. Y'all might be able to subsist off of chips and uh, candy, but I, that doesn't, it doesn't tide me over. Now, if there was a nice platter, you know, some, some veggies or something like that, even some meats, well, that's pretty sweet. People stick around for that. And so providing food that is, that is also good for people, because again, you know, cookies and that sort of thing may be good for after practice or after your game, but while you're doing things, you don't want to have to deal with a caffeine crash or a sugar crash halfway through the game. I know I don't. So having something that provides decent level energy in terms of food is always a good thing. Not required. Again, people can bring their own food. It's not that big of a deal for us, but it is another thing that can be a draw. So after you've met those needs, the next thing to do is to offer services like education. So that could be education in many things. For the physical wargaming community, it would be education in the fundamentals. It would be an education in the rules. It'd be an education in kind of who's who and, and kind of what to look out for. In terms of intellectual wargaming, it would also be a lot of the rules, a lot of introduction to the meta, and probably some introductions to various people who play different armies or different, different parts of that game. These are all things that can be educational. In addition to that, you can provide education in, in higher level stuff. So for instance, in many aspects of physical wargaming, in many areas, there is an open exchange of information between people techniques, forms, styles, all being shared. And this is a great way. This is education. This is us educating ourselves. And in terms of like Warhammer 40k, for instance, you can never learn enough. You can never go through enough hypotheticals and rehashings of a list. I mean, obviously, eventually, you just need to let what you've done rest. But it's never a bad thing to have this exchange of ideas. So offering services like education, especially for newer players, is essential to having them in advance, not just in their capabilities in the war game itself, but also in their ability to function as a part of your community. The third thing is to make sure that there is an adherence to the rules. It's very easy to develop house rules for either of these things. I've seen it done for Warhammer and for Belagarth, where you've got a small group of people that say, well, yes, we understand this is way it's played by most people, but this is the way that we want to play it. This, this is the interpretation of the rules that we want to do. And that's fine and dandy if you intend on remaining an isolated entity. If you wish to interact with the community as a whole, for instance, if you want to go to a Warhammer tournament, or if you want to go to a Belagarth event, then you need to be playing the same game as everybody else. Your house rules don't matter there. So the adherence to the rules as written is a good idea because it gets people from getting into bad habits 
and from anticipating things that aren't true or that aren't going to be applicable to a wider degree of people. And the last thing is to work to expand. And this one seems obvious. Once you have that bedrock in place, once people are coming, they've got services met, you've, you've got this adherence to rules, you want to expand your, your whatever group you're doing, whether it's an event, a unit, a, a small Warhammer group, you want to work to expand it, to bring in new people. And often this is just, hey, I'm a part of this group. You want to come join to a friend. And that's, that's one of the best recruiting measures that we have because people like spending time with their friends. So this is an extra way for them to spend time with their friends and to make new ones in a lot of cases. So working to expand is obviously a part of any group because even if you've got five people who are really, really tight, if you want that group to continue, you need new blood because if there's no new blood, blood becomes old blood, becomes retired blood, becomes no blood. So recruitment is necessary if something's to stay alive. Nothing is without change. Nothing is, with, is completely set in the way it is. All things change. And so trying to keep something the same by not expanding, not a good idea. And lastly, with this established concept, you have to figure out a time and a location, obviously, for people to meet. Whether it's for uh, a larger group session or for individual matches, there needs to be a time and a location where people can meet for that. And it needs to be sized to fit those people. If you've only got two people playing Warhammer, you don't need that big of a space. You need space for one table and a couple of chairs. You'll be okay. But if you have a number of people playing Warhammer and you all want to use the space at the same time, well, you're going to need multiple tables and a much larger space. My office, for instance, great for a, for a one-person game. There's enough room in here for a table, for some chairs, for, uh, to be able to maneuver around. It's, it's cozy, but it definitely works. Whereas if we were to have even one, we couldn't fit another table in here. That's just not something that could happen. Whereas down the hill at my buddy's house, where a lot of the times we've played, you could, we have two tables in there. So more people can use it. So, and this is also the same for, for physical wargaming. If you've got a very small crew, then your needs aren't much more than perhaps somebody's backyard. But if you've got a larger group, then you're definitely going to need to find a place that can accommodate all of those people. Another thing to be aware of is the presence of other groups in your area. Because this, this will definitely influence that, that time and location thing as well. Are there other groups in your area that are operating? Are these groups ones that some of your members may want to be involved with as well? This is going to kind of shift things around. Because while we would all love people to make our particular activity the center of their lives too, it is often not the case. I had a professor in university who was obsessed with the fact that we were supposed to make his class first, the fact that we were supposed to do his homework first and do it the best. And then I had another professor that said that. And another one. And that whole semester actually was just professors telling me that their class needed to be the most important. Obviously that couldn't be true. Not everybody can be the most important, but you can kind of maneuver that. And it's kind of the same thing with this presence of other groups. Not everything's going to work out perfectly in terms of timing, but you can still make it work. And this presence of other groups also dictates that location thing because you don't necessarily want two different practices or two different groups to be right next to each other because then they're, they're going to be appealing to the same group of people. You're going to be trying to recruit from the same group of people. So you're, it's actually working as a detriment to both of those groups. A little bit of space. 
would be good. Now, in a place like Missoula, Montana, which is where I live, there's not a whole lot of city for more than one group. We can kind of do what we want because the group that we have is just fine for the size. San Diego, on the other hand, has multiple realms because there's a lot of people and San Diego is huge. Therefore, those needs are there. So again, that presence of other groups or the size that you're talking about definitely plays in. The distribution of gear and supplies is also important. If you've got one person who is in charge of bringing things to practice or a person who is in charge of checking weapons or something like that, you probably want that person to be able to have easy access to the field. Hopefully you've distributed things more evenly. So even if one person misses practice, it's not the end of the world, but it's still something to keep in mind that that distribution of gear and supplies can absolutely make a difference. And the last one is the nature of the people. I know there's certain areas of the world where they very much value punctuality, where folks show up on time and can be expected to all the time. I don't know about where you live, but here in my hippie town, that does not happen, which is why we set the time of practice to be an hour ahead of when we actually expect people to show up. I show up on time. We typically do a practice that's officially from two in the afternoon to five in the afternoon. And so I usually show up right at two and then I can put my chair where I want to and go through a stretching routine and everything's all good. Other folks take time to trickle in. So understanding that is crucial to being able to make our realm function because otherwise we would be expecting people to show up right at three, which has never worked. And then practice gets derailed and, and everything kind of goes awry. So here you have to make an exception. You have to make a consideration for the folks that are going to be slow, which is the majority of the realm. That's kind of the same thing with, with the folks that you're doing. If you're doing Warhammer 40k, the nature of the people really matters on this one. And so take a, a good look at these things when you're establishing a new group, whether it be for intellectual or physical wargaming. These are some things you kind of want to look at. The second part of this lovely acronym is to govern. And governing is, of course, the next stage after something is already established, after things are in the works and, and going forward. At that point, there needs to be somebody in charge. There needs to be somebody driving the bus. So if that should fall to you, what, how do you do that most efficiently? Well, both of our books offer some pretty good advice on this one. Absolutely critical to governing is to have the ability and willingness to change to accommodate different situations. Rigidity in thinking serves nobody if you're in a leadership position because there are going to be circumstances that you do not anticipate. And if there's a rigid response to it, it's not going to go well. One needs to learn how to roll with the punches. One needs to learn how to move with the wind, so to speak, which is to say, go with the flow. Uh, these things are important. And especially as a leader, because a leader that gets stuck in their ways and will not listen or will not change to accommodate the situation will find themselves in a failed state before too long. So what ideals are we striving for as somebody who governs? What, what is the the thing that we're working towards. Well, firstly, internal security is huge. Making sure that your people feel safe and making sure that there is a, a core that everybody agrees to, whether that be a rule set, whether that be some form of bylaws, 
whatever the case may be, that security needs to be maintained. Also, as we had mentioned before, providing water, medications, food, these are all things that are ideals as well. Making sure that you have a self-contained community that doesn't have to necessarily split apart to go find these things. One of the most important things that one should strive for is to develop an identity for your group. This is done very easily within Belagarth because our realms or our units typically become a secondary family. We spend a lot of time with these folks. We get involved in their personal lives, their, their ins and outs, their dramas, their successes. All of these things become ours. All of these things become a part of our lives. So that identity kind of evolves on its own and can be steered in certain ways. We can pick our colors, we can choose designs and all that sort of thing. It really makes a group be able to congeal on a certain topic or a certain concept. This can also be done in Warhammer 40k too. My group here, we have put together what we call the Black Lotus Sector. And it's a, a fictional sector that we've cooked up within the Warhammer 40k universe where all of our battles take place and all of our planets are, and there's lore that we've developed. Now, some of us more than others. I've got pages of lore, whereas other people might have a paragraph, but that's just a difference in style and, you know, desire to write that sort of thing down. But it developed our identity. It really sets us apart from other war gamers in the valley, because there's a lot. You know, we're not necessarily going and practicing at the, the club or at the, um, the store itself, but we have a very healthy community here. So what we have is somewhat separate and we have a, a defining identity, which makes it cooler to be a part of it. Honestly, it's just, it's a cool thing. There's a reason why when you see the, you know, the gangers in the old movies, think about like West Side Story and all the guys are wearing the same kind of jacket, kind of the same kind of hairdo. It's a uniform. It's a uniform. It, it's nice to be a part of something. It's nice to feel like you belong. And these are things that you can do to develop that. So developing an identity is is really something to strive for because it makes governing so much easier. What also makes governing so much easier is to encourage involvement from your members. You may have one very competent person who seems like they can run just about everything, but they can't do it forever. That's the thing. People do burn out. Our most dedicated volunteers, our most dedicated leaders inevitably will burn out eventually unless they receive assistance from other people because delegating is awesome for people who are in charge. So if you're in charge of a realm, for instance, you'd want to delegate a head herald position and a head weapons checker position and probably a PR person and really any talent that you can think of that would be necessary, have somebody for it and still have your strength, still make sure that you are playing to, to who you are as a leader, but don't do it all yourself. Nobody should have to do this all themselves. So that's encouraging involvement helps the leadership, but it also helps the people. If they feel like they have a stake in what they're doing, if they feel like what they do matters, that they have certain responsibilities, that's going to give them that sense of identity as well. Like it's going to give them a sense of ownership, which is awesome because once people start developing that ownership, it becomes stewardship. And that's kind of what we're going for is a community of people who want to give back and do things that benefit their community. And that community is, and this brings us to our next point, inevitably a fighting culture. Because just by the name of what we do, war gaming, it's a fighting culture. And you want to be cultivating that from the very beginning. 
it's not really a wargaming club if you guys, if we just get together and discuss what happened that week or what's going on in football. Like there's no wargaming taking place. If we go over to somebody's house and we just enjoy lounging around and watching movies and, you know, maybe occasionally going out and sparred, that's not really a fighting culture either. The fighting culture is born on the field, in the competition, and the desire to do better. And by developing a fighting culture, which is to say developing a competitive field where people want to be involved in that way and want to excel in that way, it really gives direction to what you're doing. Like I said, like with Warhammer, if, if you never get together and you're never actually practicing the game, if you go to a tournament, you're not going to do well because you don't come from a fighting culture. You haven't been practicing like the people who are actually going to win. And this is a very similar thing with uh, Belagarth or any other sort of physical wargaming. You need to be in shape. You need to be used to the motions. We need to be able to move in the ways that we need to move. And to do that, we need practice. And so taking it easy for the whole year except for an event is not a good way to do well at that event. You might be able to go good in the long term. Certainly muscle memory does play a huge part in it. But if one wants to have that longevity, actually wants to be able to excel for a long period of time, you need to practice. One of the things about Warhammer that should be practiced is just standing there. Asking a normal person to stand someplace for five hours straight, it, it takes some endurance. It takes some practice to do it. I mean, not as much endurance as running a marathon, mind you, but if you're not used to it, it does hurt. So any of these things can be established through a fighting culture. That fighting culture also leads to the spread of military science. In this case, that is the spread, the free spread of information between individuals. It should not matter that somebody comes from a different realm, unit, club, store, than you do from a different even angle of the world. I'm sitting here talking to folks from all over the world, sharing my secrets, sharing my military science. And that's because I want this to be a conversation. I want you all to go out and talk to people about what you know, about what you think, and compare that to what they know and what, what they think, and, and evolve this whole new way of thinking. Places that are secretive with their information, people that are selfish, with their information are actually doing themselves a disservice because it's through this free exchange of ideas and techniques that we can improve as a community. I know that one of the, the things that's helped me out in Warhammer the most is, is talking to other people about their armies, playing different armies and kind of understanding how those differences come together. I don't play Dark Eldar, but in talking to somebody who does, I can better understand the nuances of what's going on there. In talking to somebody who's a Necron player, I'm better at fighting them too. And conversely, they're better at coming after me. But what that's going to do is cause us both to develop better tactics. And so if you're doing this all across your community, you'll just watch the skill level rise and rise and rise. So the spread of military science is absolutely paramount and not shutting down, not trying to stifle information or stifle creativity, but letting it express itself. That's where we want to be. Another important thing to governing is to develop a minimal intelligence agency. Now, we've talked a little bit about this on the show, about spies and that sort of thing, but honestly, this is even more simplified than that. A minimal intelligence agency in this point is just to kind of know what's going on. Make sure that you're friends with the different people around. If you're a leader, you need to have contacts in every group that's, that's in your area that you kind of have 
jurisdiction over. Because otherwise, factionalism begins. Otherwise, you don't necessarily know what's going on inside one group or another. And so having that minimal intelligence agency, just kind of knowing the temperature of the water, basically, of, of the folks you're dealing with, it doesn't need to be involved. You don't need to be keeping files on people or have field agents or anything like that. Just just touch base. Just, just make sure that there's communication happening. That qualifies as a minimal intelligence agency. And it's absolutely the same for any sort of Warhammer stuff. If you're not communicating, then it doesn't really work. And this one, this next one is specifically for uh, physical wargaming. And actually, no, it could also be applied to intellectual wargaming as well. And that's the integration of the different levels between combatants and non-combatants, making sure that they are kind of on the same page. Warhammer players, I'm sure that uh, you would get less stress from your spouse if your spouse had somebody to hang out with too. You know, if when you went over to your friend's house to play a game, your spouse could go and hang out with their spouse or go to a spouse party or something like that. The, having them involved definitely leads to, to more freedom for the, the folks involved. Also, there can be that exchange of information. In the, in the case of Warhammer 40k, your non-coms could be uh, army painters, army builders, the hobbyists who are, who are mostly there for the aesthetic, if not the actual fighting. And then you've got, you know, the combatants, people who are super into it, super, they just want to have the models in order to, to use them to fight. And in having both of these people, they can kind of balance each other out and help one another. For instance, as a primarily combatant, I'm terrible at painting. I'm pretty good at putting things together, but not very good at painting. And so that networking with non-coms allows me to to have my stuff painted extremely well. And non-coms can have their stuff showcased by folks. And so that's just that's just one of the ways that this integration can really work. And obviously with within something like Belagarth, it's absolutely crucial to have people working together because there's a lot of voices and there's a lot of different perspectives on how things should be run. And honestly, if the volunteers are such a huge part of the community, which they are, they should have a say in what goes on. There are a lot of very talented people who may not get their spotlight just because they aren't a dedicated fighter. And that's not cool. And with this integration thing, people can get recognition for their talents and for their efforts. So this is just a good idea, no matter what group you're working through. Another ideal, and this one's pretty easy to, make, or to meet, is to have hard copies of the rules, whether they be for your game or for your bylaws. Now, I don't know if your Warhammer group is going to have bylaws. That's... That's pretty complicated, but I know we do in Belagarth, and then everybody's got game rules. And so to make sure that there's a hard copy nearby, that somebody has the book, somebody's got the, the BOD, somebody's got the authority, so you can flip to it. Otherwise you have people saying, well, I know I think it was this. Oh, I know I think it was this. And that can lead to a lot of hostility. It is so much easier to just have the copies on hand and be able to settle those things. So that's an easily met ideal. And the last of these ideals is to practice and facilitate transport to events. So group practices, constant practice, making sure people are up on the meta, people are, are in shape for what you're doing, and then helping people get to events or get to tournaments. Because you don't want that to be a barrier. You don't want the fact that somebody doesn't have quite enough money to get themselves there alone for gas or, or doesn't have a car and can't get to the place you don't want that to be a reason that they can't come. 
making sure that everybody in our community can participate or at least as much as can. Like if there's eight people in a community and I've got four seats in my car, I'm not stuffing people into the trunk. It's going to be a lottery or something like that, but this is within reason. But if you've got the vehicles, make sure people can come, make sure people can contribute because this can only help. This can only help develop and, and shape what you want. The last issue with governance is that of legitimacy and leadership, because legitimacy can be a hard one in what we do. And so trying to make sure that you've got that legitimacy and that you are being a good leader is obviously very, very important. So let's go over, this is actually mostly out of the operations and low intensity conflict. I was really quite pleased with this section. The first of them is the acceptance of the right to govern. Do the people that you're in charge of accept you as their leader? For instance, if you're, if you're within some sort of a democratic system, have you been elected? If you're within a monarchy, are you a part of the hereditary line? Like whatever, whatever it is within the system that gives somebody the right to govern, there has to be an acceptance of that. So that's very important. Obviously leadership can't really take place if people don't want to be led. That authority though, needs to be genuine and effective. Both of those things are important. You can't just be genuine and then not be effective at all, not be able to run anything. And also being effective, but not being genuine can lead to a lot of issues as well. So you want both of these things within your governance, the ability to connect with people on a real level, to really speak to them, to really listen to them, and then to actually put those things into practice, to actually be able to create policies or, or do things that fix the situation and lead to the greatest amount of happiness and success for your group. So that authority has to be there, otherwise it's not going to be accepted. Once that authority is established, it must be used through proper agencies for good purposes. Authority just can't be swung around like a bully club. That's not what it's for. I know that one of the foam fighting communities, at least at the time of this recording, is kind of falling apart because the central leadership is using their ability to ban people just kind of willy-nilly. Now the ban exists for a reason. You should be able to ban people from a group if they're being unsafe, extremely rude or disruptive toward other members. Like there's a lot of fairly extreme situations that definitely warrant a ban. Disagreeing with the leadership, wanting to run in an election against the leadership, laugh reacting a post by the leadership are not good reasons to use that particular agency, use the ability to ban. And it shows like this, this particular group is not doing very well at the moment because people resent that. And so that's something absolutely to avoid, which is the, the whole corruption thing, using whatever power you have to further your own ends, not smart, but using proper agencies for good purposes making sure that what you have available to you is protecting and advancing the goals of the community, well, that's, that's absolutely something that's necessary. And in doing so, you need to be exerting that positive influence, but without formal authority. Remember, none of us is actually in charge, not really. We're not governors, we're not mayors, nor senators, nor representatives, nor presidents, nor prime ministers, nor kings, nor, nor any of that. None of us actually have any real rank. This is something that has been assigned to us by our peers. And so without formal authority, without the ability to call cops in to reinforce policy or deploy the army to quell an uprising, you have to exert a positive influence. 
And you have to make sure that that is being accepted. Because again, you don't actually have a leg to stand on there. You're not king. You're not a representative. You're not a cop. So how do you get people to do what you want without forcing them? Well, these other things we've been talking about are pretty, pretty good ideas for that. The information fight is another thing. This is often overlooked. And again, we've got whole episodes on information control and spies, so I won't go too much into it here. But this thing is very important. If rumors begin to spread, even small ones, they can ruin a realm. They can ruin a particular leadership. I think we've all seen it. People's careers destroyed by a rumor. So having the information under control and making sure that you are involved in those conversations and that the truth comes out. Now, I'm not saying lie. That's not the kind of information control I'm looking at. We still are preaching integrity on this show. But making sure that the information being spread is the correct information is a very, very important thing to leadership. And in doing so, it's easier to facilitate relations between different, now I'm making air quotes, agencies. Now, these agencies are not the Department of Defense and the, you know, the, the Secretary of the Army and all that sort of thing. These agencies would be things like the individual little cliques that form within any group. Whether you're in school or you go to church or wherever the case may be, wherever humans gather, there will be cliques. There will be smaller sections that become, you know, not isolated from the rest of the whole, but, but distinct, distinct from the rest of the whole. So for something to work properly, these forces need to be working together because while we may be on quote unquote separate teams within like a realm, for instance, we all sit at the same table. We're all part of the same realm. So people need to get along those and they don't necessarily have to like each other. The relations do need to be maintained. And it's, it's a kind of a leader's job to do that. It's very similar within like a Warhammer club. If you're kind of in charge of your Warhammer club, you want people to kind of be getting along. You want people to kind of be on the same page. It makes your games much easier. It makes your whole thing much more functional. So facilitating relations between different agencies or even different individuals, very important. The ability to sustain in an underdeveloped area is something that is also often overlooked. An underdeveloped area for what we do would be an area that does not have access to a whole lot of wargaming or doesn't have it established at all. So a place that doesn't have a wargaming, like a physical wargaming realm, or a place that doesn't have a games workshop store or an established group that goes to that store and are likely far removed from other ones. For instance, I know I've talked about Stygia a lot, but we're about six hours away from our nearest neighbor. We are definitely an underdeveloped area, and we we certainly were when Sumatai founded this realm. So it speaks to the legitimacy and the leadership that he had at that time at the fact that Stygia is still here. Obviously, he had the ability to, to sustain in an underdeveloped area. And so there's a lot of challenges that are kind of unique to that, and I'm hoping to talk about him with when he's on the show. And then the same idea, this last idea of legitimacy and leadership is that local support may not be available. Like we said, a lonely realm, you might be all by yourself in the middle of nowhere. And so weapons and supplies and garb and armies and paint and all that sort of thing needs to come from the individuals. And that's why the encouraging involvement is a good idea. So all these things, governing is obviously an extremely complicated process and is going to be different for every single group. But these are good ideas to keep in mind if you should find yourself a leader in the future. 
But what are we working towards, lastly? The, the last G, gains. What do we gain from all this? And what can we work towards with what we have achieved through our establishment and our governing? Well, our goals within gains, at first, should be consistent presence. That's the first thing. If you're trying to actually gain notoriety or gain any sort of presence within your community, the first thing is constant or consistent presence. And in this particular case, quantity means more than quality. And that means showing up. Showing up to local, local tournaments, showing up to regional tournaments, showing up to practice, showing up to events, showing up. It does not matter if one does well. Not at this stage. You just need to get your name out there. We just need to make our faces seen so that people know who we are. So they can at least identify us. That's the first one. The second one involves the quality because attracting new members requires quality displays of one's skill. If you go to a, a tournament and you're looking to recruit people for your Warhammer team and you're not doing very well, there's not a whole lot of people that are going to be like, let me jump on that guy's bandwagon. But if you go and you kick a bunch of butt, you win the tournament, you've got a lot more bargaining power when it comes to recruiting people. And this is very similar within physical wargaming too. If you're not performing very well or your group is not performing very well, it's unlikely to attract new members. But if you can at least have one or two people who can go out there and achieve can impress people with their displays, well, there's a, there's a problem solved right there. So that's a good way to attract new members is through quality operations. The third thing is to challenge and establish power. This is one of the best ways to get yourself known is to make sure you go up against the big dog. Don't shy away from a fight. You know, if this particular person in your local Warhammer group is just absolutely godlike, they don't lose very often, They've got a fantastic army, got their rules down pat. Make sure that's the person you challenge. And challenge them again. And challenge them again. And make sure people know you're doing it. And make sure people watch you do it. Because this will get attention. It shows you're not afraid. It's a very similar thing within physical wargaming. Find the biggest, baddest, hardest hitting person you can find. And just practice with them over and over and over again. Now, also with practicing fundamentals, you can't just get good getting your butt kicked. But if you can get to a point where you understand what they're doing and how they're winning, this gets you further. This is one of the goals. And lastly, the last goal is to improve with constant drill and practice. Once you've got this place, you've got this, this kind of framework to work from, you got to maintain it. We are not static beings. I am not who I was five years ago. If I expected myself to just stay that way, I was a fool. Because we all change. We all get, we all gain weight. We lose weight. We go through periods of greater muscle tone or less muscle tone, periods where we eat better, don't eat better, have good habits, bad habits. All these things change. But you can achieve some form of consistency with constant drill and practice. And obviously do it within the means that you have available. Like if it's going to wreck you to go out there and do like a bunch of of workouts with your drill, go and do forms. Go and do some shadow boxing, do some bag work, do what is capable and do it well. Because it's better to do what you're capable of well than to do something that you're not capable of badly. I know that seems kind of a duh moment, but this is how we get better. So that constant drill, constant practice will help remain consistent and whatever these gains are that we achieve, we can keep them. 
the plan of advancement after this. We've got our primary goals laid out right there. As we talked about earlier, you got to get others to take your group seriously. If we're trying to become noticed, if we're trying to get recruitment, if we're trying to become a nationally or internationally recognized group, you have to, to get other people to take you seriously. But once this happens, once a group begins to rise up and is taken seriously, you must be prepared for a strong response because a strong attack, a strong come up like that will always provoke a strong response from the established people in the area. I know I've told the story before about the Gelfin treachery. That was partially due because the Urukai were a new unit. They were coming up. They were challenging the old order. And so certain deals were made, certain treacheries went down that enabled that to not happen. But it was because of the strong attack. The Urukai came out of nowhere and hit like hard. They were very, very strong at first. And so there was this strong pushback against them. So that needs to be expected. There will be pushback. That person in the Warhammer store that you've been challenging over and over and over again, they will want to win. If you start to get better, they will push back. So that's part of it though. That's to be expected. That's not bad. That's just part of this whole advancement. But you use that conflict to recruit. That conflict gets you visibility. If you're going toe to toe with a group or an individual who already has notoriety, then you can use that conflict to actually draw people in to your side. Make them either sympathetic towards your plight or, you know, people who also want to go against that group or individual might join you, or you, they could just see the quality at which you fight or which you play your game and want to join for that. Either way, the conflict can absolutely be used to your benefit, to my benefit, to anyone's benefit. And throughout all of this, throughout the establishment of a group, the governing of a group and getting your gains through a group, perseverance above all all. There are going to be protracted struggles. You're going to think that you've solved a problem or an issue only to have something similar or completely different pop up. You're going to cut off one head and two more heads are going to grow. This is leadership. Leadership is mostly damage control, putting out fires, a little bit of policy, a little bit of moving forward, but mostly it's dealing with other people's idiocy or mistakes. So expect protracted struggles. Expect issues to not go away and to have to keep dealing with them over and over and over again and have the patience, have the perseverance to push through it. And these goals that we have, these gains that we're looking to achieve, they are best assessed in the context of our long-term objectives. What do you want? What are you going for? Are we just trying to enjoy our local little scene, not really looking to expand outwards? That's going to affect your goals. It's going to affect your methods. Are you looking to make a huge splash in the international scene? Really trying to draw some attention? Really trying to win some stuff? Well, that's also going to change the way you approach these goals. It is something that should be meditated on and thought about heavily. But that's egg. And that's a, that's a patented term. I allow you all to use it free of charge. But that's, uh, I'm pretty sure it's unless somebody else has thought of it, which, you know, there's billions of us on the planet. It's entirely possible. But, egg. Establish, govern, and gains. So now, we go on to uh, in my interview with our special guest, Lear, where we're going to talk about just these same principles. Uh, 
My special guest today is Lear from the realm of Durdemarion, somebody that I've known for quite a few years and I'm quite fond of. Lear, it is wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks. I'm super excited to be here. So this is Big 50. So I and, and again, Lear and I go way back. So I'm very, very glad to have her on Big 50 because this is a big deal or, or something like that. That's what they tell me. So they say. Yeah. I'm just looking forward to talking with you for a little bit. So Lear, uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your background in wargaming. Uh, so I've been fighting for seven years now. Um, I started in a small town in Arkansas in the realm of Faldenfell and have fought there for about half my career, and the other half I've been here in the realm of Durdemarion in the lovely city of Nashville. So in, in terms of age, like the age of the realm, and in terms of size, how would you compare those two realms? Ooh, I can't tell you exactly how old Faldenfell was, but not very old, uh, and it was fairly small. We had three units, I think, in the realm, maybe four um, not, you know, it didn't see a whole lot of fighting. Meanwhile, Durdemarion has been around since before the whole split, so 20 plus years. Um, there's always a lot of fighters out. We have a lot of events. It is a whole other world out here. Oh, for sure. I mean, I spent some time in Durdemarion myself, and it is a, a really cool realm uh, with, with a lot of really good things going on. So, You've been there a little bit longer than I have. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit about Durdemarion's leadership. Um, well, I mean, I can't say enough good things about our leadership. Uh, Angel is phenomenal. She rules us with an iron fist, but it is a loving iron fist. Um, <laughs> and as far as that goes, all of our leadership is elected, and there is a reason they keep getting reelected. They know what they're doing in terms of taking care of the community that's already here, but also building the community, making sure we're doing well, building those relationships, making sure we've got a pretty strong culture out here. So in, in terms of that, I want to follow up on that a little bit. You say that they're doing a really good job continuing to build the community and, and bringing people in. It sounds like Dirtamarian has a fairly effective recruiting strategy. Yeah, actually. Um, so we've done demonstrations out at MTAC, and I think there are a couple of local cons as well. They're, you know, just random people walking by, and they're like, oh, who are these guys? And they stop and they chat, because we do fight in a public park that gets a fair bit of traffic, honestly. Social media, you know, we're on Facebook, probably on Instagram. That just, that's, that's the best way to ever advertise. Everybody's on social media. Um, but also sure. regular media, you know, we've had reporters wander by, who the heck are these guys? And then suddenly there's a blurb on the local news channel or in a local magazine. And then also it's a well-established community. So you've got someone that goes and says to their friend, hey, I do this thing at this same time every week on this same day every week. You should come fight. And then they do. And then they stay, and then they say to their friend, hey, you should come do this thing. And then that's two more people. So yeah, we have a pretty wide net. There are also a couple of colleges around, including one, I think, that's like right next door to our park, if I recall correctly. So yeah, we hit the college students too. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> oh. But, uh, I mean, it, it, recruitment isn't enough. Like, you, having people come in is one thing, but having them stay is another. And sure. from what you've been saying, Durdemarion is a large realm that has been around for a long time, has a pretty good time retaining people. What, what do you think about Durdemarion culture encourages people to stick around? Uh, so to begin with, 
I've found that Dirty Marion is pretty welcoming. You know, somebody new shows up and it takes no time at all for an established member to go, hey, I haven't seen you around. My name's whatever. Who are you? You know, what can I help you find? We have loner weapons. Somebody's there with a waiver and explaining the rules and saying, hey, let me spar with you for a few minutes so that you can get a feel for it. So right off the bat, another pun intended, we're pretty welcoming. But beyond that, um, we have a lot of day events. We have consistent practices. And in the off season, we have winter dinners. And I feel like there are other events, but I don't, I, like we've done the uh, wine and painting before. Um, where, but the winter dinners are where the realm goes to, you know, they pick a restaurant and they go and they have dinner together. And you have to RSVP, that way we can let the restaurant know, hey, you should expect this many nerds, possibly in garb. Um, but it lets us see each other and interact and hang out, even when it's maybe a little chillier than we'd like to fight. Uh, and even in COVID times, I think there's a realm discord, um, just to keep us all in contact with each other, trading ideas, trading projects, saying, hey, this is what's going on with me. So we're not cut off from each other. So would you say that Durdemarian is good about facilitating communication between various groups, different units and different individuals? Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, we definitely, there's another realm that's 30 to 40 minutes away from Durdemarian, and we absolutely have day battles with them. Just like, hey, we're going to do this, we call them invasions, and we go and we fight with them or invite them to come fight with us, and it's posted on social media as an event. Like, hey, we are having this event, come out, and there's usually a better showing. You know, we have more fighters out on those days than we do on just an average practice day. For sure. And I mean, all of this bureaucracy and all this administration, as you said before, it really sounds like your leadership is, they keep being reelected because they're effective. Yes. Because they actually get the job done. And so the people of Der Marion are totally willing to accept their authority because they understand that the person with the plan is, that's legit. Like, you should believe in that person. Oh yeah, very much. They're experienced and they care and they're good at what they do. Would you say that Dirt Marion has a very distinct uh, identity of its own? Um, you know, I haven't traveled enough and seen enough Belagarth to really say whether that's the case or not. But we do have a fair bit of realm pride. Not, you know, nothing <laughs> offensive, but just, yeah, we're proud of our realm. This is our people. This is our community. Um, so there's that, if not a specific, we're different from other realms for XYZ reasons. I, and I do remember, I was there at one point, and there was a unit battle called, and I had been living in Tennessee at the time, and so I was going to go join the Western Alliance, just this hodgepodge of Western fighters that had made it out to this battle. Oh, yeah. And Angel hollered at me, and she said, I don't think so. You're, you're dirty right now. You better come stand with us. And so, like, she definitely had a very strong... Uh, interpretation of you know geography or uh, ge geographic location right. means that that is where your loyalty lies. Yeah, and I would say there's a certain amount of that. If it's not unit loyalty, yeah, there's a certain amount of realm loyalty. And if we go to events as a realm, you fight with your realm. Don't fight with somebody else's realm. You'll get fussed at gently. No, yeah, and and we've done a report on Durdemarian before, and and we have nothing but nice things to say for the most because they're. 
They're very effective. They do what they do very well. There's a reason they've been around for as long as they have. Oh, yeah. I love my realm. So let's move over and contrast a little bit with the, the first realm you were a part of. In terms of recruitment, uh, my understanding is they didn't really do a whole lot other than like the one vein, right? Yeah. So, of course, Foldenfell is in a college town. So most of the recruitment was a bunch of college kids. And that's great because, you know, what else are we going to be doing? But on the other hand, sometimes we're studying or there's midterms or there's finals. And then when the semester ends, people go home and home is not necessarily where your realm is. So attendance wasn't necessarily consistent. Um, sure. And that's... That's really just drawing from one place. That's not a good, consistent draw from multiple places. So, but it sounds like, you know, college kids, and we've, we've seen that here in Stygia too, that the college crowd is a pretty easy one to draw from. Like there's a lot of folks that are willing to try it, like the college folks and the high school folks are the ones that are most typically going to join uh, because they're not broken yet. Right. But there's also that double-edged sword that the recruitment may be easy, but retention is really difficult in that situation. Yeah, well, and I mean, I left Faldenfell and I came out here to Nashville because that's where life took me, but it means I'm in a totally different realm now as well. And it also sounds like the leadership styles were very different between the realms as well, that Faldenfell had a very different culture. Very much so. Um, I can't say there was really a realm leader in Faldenfell. There were unit leaders... And sometimes unit leaders would get together to make decisions for the realm or more specifically plan events for the realm. But even that was not, not great. Whereas here in Dirtamarian, we definitely have like definite leadership. You know, this person is the president. We have a vice president. We have people shadowing these people, people in charge of merchants and planning and tech and all of this other stuff that you kind of need at this point to run a realm efficiently. Sure. Especially as they start to get larger. If Dirdemarian yeah. didn't have that infrastructure, it couldn't do nearly as well as it does. Yeah, definitely true. So it doesn't sound like there was any f forum of effective central leadership in Faldenfell. No, not at all. It was, it was a little messy, uh, but it was a young realm, you know. The sure. young realms start a little messy and then they smooth things out as they get older and more established and uh, more consistent attendance. Did you find that that lack of a, a central governing body led to an increased level of factionalism? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, there was a lot of competition between units and not the sort of friendly competition you see at events either where, yeah, it's it's unit battle. It was, there was, there it got hostile sometimes. And I think some of it is because we weren't we weren't members of a realm. The realm is just where we happen to be. We were members of the unit. Mm. So you didn't have that same pride uh, to the, the geographic location. Because, I right. mean, here in, in Stygia, there's a fierce amount of Stygia pride. Everybody, just about everybody wears a lotus. Uh, you know, we go and everywhere we go, we talk about how we're from Stygia. And then we talk about our unit. Right. You know, there's, there's a lot of pride coming for here. But... It, but it doesn't sound like uh, Faldenfell had a lot of that. Uh, not so much, no. And unfortunately, the few people that did have pride in their realm, most of them moved on to other places fairly quickly. So in terms of that factionalism, 
did it make the realm functional at all? Were you guys able to, to do much? Uh, we had yearly events that were put on by like the OG unit um, who'd been there the longest. They were all veteran fighters. And we had two yearly events. Um, but that was that was about it. We didn't really... Like, we didn't have day events. We didn't have very consistent practices. Yeah, not terribly effective. Yeah, it sounds like it. So there, there was a, a kind of lack of inst- infrastructure there, a lack of yeah. organization, no central leadership, which kind of uh, people were kind of spinning off and doing their own things. Uh, am I right to assume that you enjoy your experience in Durdamarian more? Oh, yeah, much more, definitely. It sounds like it would be a, a much more... Uh, stable place to be yeah but wherever there are humans there are emotions and as much as we might want to divorce our emotions from our decisions and our ruling style it's hard to do that because our emotions are so much a part of us how did emotion play into the situation in Durdamarian versus Faldenfell oh boy um so as far as Faldenfell is concerned, you know, we were a bunch of young, dumb kids. Um, young, dumb, and full of hope for the future, as I heard somebody <laughs> phrase it once. Um, but, you know, when you're that young, you're also you're worried about college, you've got relationships happening, you're going through a transitional period from high school living at home to college living in the dorms. All kinds of hot-headed, fun feelings not-so-fun feelings, and unfortunately, that got taken onto the field a little too often. Either, you know, an accident happens, uh-oh, that's a headshot, and somebody is irrationally angry and not handling it well, and now there's animosity, or somebody broke up with somebody else and it just split this entire unit. I definitely saw that firsthand. As important as our feelings and our relationships are, they're not the best thing for running a unit or a realm or even, you know, bringing them into what is essentially a consensually violent sport. Oh, sure. We talk about that on the show all the time. It is absolutely consensual violence. And while there is a certain level of emotion that we take onto the field, a ferocity, Mm -hmm. obviously some of these other emotions get in the way of what we're doing. Uh, But Dirtamarian obviously is not run by robots. They also have emotions, but the emotions they bring to the field are a little different. Yeah. um, Generally speaking, people keep it together on the field. Um, We have, you know, we have several heralds out, at least two for a practice, usually the head herald and whoever is shadowing them. Sometimes people just volunteering who have, you know, been heralding for a while. And when they see somebody getting a little too heated or a little upset, it's like, hey, why don't you step off the field and cool off for a while? Um, and I don't see our leadership really getting mad either. The only time I hear them yell is if somebody gets injured and then it's get out of the way. Right. It's never, you know, it's concern. It's not anger. Sure. Um, I, that makes sense. And it right. also sounds like it would be a lot more effective yeah. in terms of, it seems like common sense, but if people aren't boiling over on the field constantly, there's going to be a lot more stability just in general. Uh, did you find that Durdamarian, like I know that they do classes. They'll, they'll offer classes for new fighters or uh, like fundamentals occasionally. Yeah. Have you ever attended those classes? Um, I've been to a couple. I think I went to a heralding class, but that's been a while. 
the best one I went to, Sergicanta did a female body mechanics uh, that I went to, and it absolutely changed the way I look at fighting, and made me fight differently, and made me fight better, because, you know, unfortunately it is often a male-dominated sport, and male bodies move differently than female bodies, and so learning to account for those differences, huge. It was great. And seeing those kinds of classes, and I've also seen, I feel like I've seen, I've seen a lot of things, uh, like red classes, like fundamentals of this class or that class. We don't do it often, but uh, in the summer months, when it's bright for much longer and the weather is more pleasant, we also do, like, a, I think it gets, I think it's like bronze boot camp or something, and we have practices on Thursdays. And it's usually more geared toward, okay, what do we want to work on? Do we want to work on working as a team or, you know, figuring out the mechanics of wolf packing, stuff like that. And it's not an established class, but it is designed to be a learning experience. And then, and do you find it effective? Do you think these classes actually help new and even um, like middle experienced fighters get better faster? Yeah, I would say so. Um, I know they've helped me, but I've also watched people that started long after I did in Dirtamarian just crank up the ranks as it were and improve very quickly because they're at every practice they're going to these classes they're you know they're learning not just from getting their butts kicked in a melee uh, situation well, that makes sense it sounds like Dirtamarian is very free with their knowledge they don't tend to keep a whole lot of secrets in terms of technique or or fighting or anything like that. Oh, very much so. Compare that with uh, Faldenfeld. Did you find that they offered, did they, was there a freedom of information there? Did they did they encourage people to engage in this military science or were secrets more kept closely? Uh, it was more secrets, unfortunately. You saw a lot more of, well, we want our realm to be the best, so we're not going to help your fighters improve sort of thing, which honestly is unfortunate like if you want your unit to be the best then grow and have a welcoming you know a welcoming air and community to your unit not just oh well, we're better fighters than you and that kind of elitism doesn't do anybody any good and and uh, is it right to assume that the fighters endure to marion who have access to that much wider range of, of freely shared information excel faster than they would in a place like faldenfell definitely yeah well, I, I think that that, uh, that speaks for itself. Yeah. Because self-improvement is a huge part of what we do. Oh, for sure. And speaking for my own self, I've learned more in the time I've been in Durdemarian than I ever did fighting in Faldenfell. And I, like, it sounds like the leadership in Durdemarian absolutely exerts a positive influence. For sure, yeah. There's a reason that that, that, central, that centralized system is there. And again, it sounds like it, it does pretty well. Now, you had talked about Dirtamarian and said that there was a lot that they did for uh, community improvement. For instance, those suppers that right. people take during the, the winter and occasionally during the other times where everybody's there. Uh, people from different units, people who are of different skill levels, different cliques, as you will, mm -hmm. all dining together, having a good time together. Was there anything like that in Faldenfell? Not really. We would do day events sometimes, but it was rare that they were really about community building. It was often some kind of tournament and it was more combat based. It wasn't, yeah, let's just 
hang out and have a good time. Did you find that non-coms were kind of excluded from public life in Faldenfell? Uh, well, we honestly didn't really have that many non-coms. So... So I'm going to go with yes. So yeah, very much so. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and, and I, I honestly think that that integration is huge because, you know, non-coms make up so much of what we do um, that it's very important to, to include them in there and to kind of foster that, that uh, community. Because if you've got people who can sew and who can cook, that's fantastic. As a seamstress, yes, I support this statement. <laughs> I, I, I love y'all. You, you guys make us look fly. It's what we're here for. It sounds like Faldenfell was kind of a underdeveloped area in terms of the age of the, of the realm itself and the experience of the members uh, and, and also probably not near a whole lot of other realms geographically speaking. Not really. We had a couple of other realms that were in the state or close enough to be, you know, almost in the state, like just across the border. Um, but they were both a few hours drive away, like three hours drive away, uh, which isn't terrible, but it's not something you want to do every weekend to go fight with these people. It's like, oh yeah, we'll do this once a quarter, you know, maybe we'll have a day battle. Whereas here in Dirty Marion, I think the closest realm is like 30 to 40 minutes away. And it's like, yeah, we're going to have an invasion every single month. And that, that gets everybody circulating. Again, those ideas are circulating. Yeah. There's a lot of experience happening there. And, and that positive community building again. Yeah, it's pretty great. And it's also like, oh, cool, let me fight with these people that I don't usually get to fight with and pick up more skills. So as, as a lonely realm, like uh, Faldenfell was, mm -hmm. or is, I, 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 do they still exist? Do you know? Uh, jury's out. Honestly, I think they went to Hearthlight for a while, but I don't know if there's anything of the Dag Realm left. Fair enough. Well, I mean, things petered out there, and, and again, that lonely realm, that being without local support, is definitely hard. What do you think could have been done differently to kind of uh, counteract that lack of local support? Um, I think if we hadn't gotten so very factional, it would have gone a lot better. Um, but that was an issue for us, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, if there hadn't been so much hostility between units, we probably could have worked together and at least, you know, kept events going regularly. Even if we were small, we could have still been fighting together and there would be a little bit of recruitment, just, you know, somebody new moves in, new batch of college students, you grab a friend, hey, come fight with me. We probably would have been okay, but yeah, that hostility is what what really tore it apart. Having been a part of a realm like Durdamarian with a, a strong history, tradition, and centralized structure, and having had the experience of a fairly new realm that did not have that centralized structure and certainly uh, didn't have the same cohesion between its very ele various elements, if you were to be giving advice to someone who is starting a new realm, what would you tell them? Honestly, if you're starting a new realm, don't put emphasis on units yet. Units will form with time. You don't have to pick a unit. Um, make sure that you're not being elitist or exclusionary. You know, oh, well, you're just new. You don't know how to fight. It's like, no, take the time. Say, hey, yeah, come fight with us. Hey, let me teach you some things. Let me spar with you for a few minutes so that you're comfortable going into this let me teach you the rules hey here's loner weapons so that you can fight with us you know engage with people it gets them to stay 
and also consistency. Have a consistent time and place and day of the week or multiple days of the week that you have your practice. And hang out outside of practice too, like have weapon building days or crafting days. Like, oh, let you're struggling with garb? Come on over. Let me help you make a basic tunic so that you've got something to wear out there. Involving people in things that are not just combat goes a long way toward establishing the community you need to establish a realm that's going to last. Because it, it, like we said before, it, it takes both sides. Like we, we may want to develop a fighting culture because again, we're, we're a fighting community. It's the, the kind of the nature of our sport is to be fighting, yeah. but that's not all of it. There's a lot of time you spend off the field, a lot of time that is spent, you know, interpersonally between people and people kind of need to like each other at that point. Yeah, that definitely helps a lot. Uh, it also makes it a lot easier when you accidentally get a face shot to not bear a grudge when you actually like this person and you realize, oh, that was an accident. It happens. Well, and uh, and you're going to be starting your own realm pretty soon here too, right? Potentially. Um, you know, not 100% sure, but hopefully, and hopefully I can take the things I've learned listening to this podcast and also the experiences I've had between Faldenfell and Dirtamarian and put it to good use. For sure. Uh, well, if you want some good advice, you can always go back and listen to this podcast again and, and listen to yourself a little <laughs> bit, because honestly, you touched on some very good points today. Thanks. I uh, had somebody guiding my answers pretty well. <laughs> well, that's about the uh, the time we have today. Uh, Lear, thank you so much for being on again. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah, of course. Thank you for having me. This was wonderful. And now we move on into our discussion of the fertile soil of insurgency. No, insurgency does not occur in a vacuum. There are a lot of factors that need to be in place for an insurgency to even become a possibility. Well-ordered, harmonious, prosperous nations do not have an issue with insurgency. Insurgency is often brought about by extreme societal instability or through unwelcome reforms. In April 1979, large parts of Afghanistan were in open rebellion. Active insurgencies were starting all over the place. So, knowing that this did not happen in a vacuum, how did this come about? Our last episode, we discussed a little bit of the background of the Soviet-Afghan War and the involvement of those nine years that we're going to be covering. For this episode, however, I want to look into the government changes and the instability that took place before the Soviet intervention even happened, before it was even necessary, Afghanistan was in a state of turmoil. And for the reasons for that, we're about to go over. But also, again, remember that this kind of instability can happen anywhere and should be watched for in all places. So by mid-20th century, Afghanistan had been a monarchy for over 200 years, they had been slowly losing territory to the British, to the Sikhs, and other empires. But Afghanistan itself still remained a proud kingdom and ruled itself autonomously 
For quite a long time, after the collapse of the previous empire, of which they were a part, Afghanistan as a kingdom was quite successful for some time. King Mohammed Zahir Shah took to the throne in 1933. He was the first monarch to not be a part of the Barakzai dynasty, which had existed since this previous empire I had mentioned. They had been in charge of this kingdom, and through a, a series of marital things and an abdication, Zahir Shah became the ruler of Afghanistan. Now, he quickly started to transfer it into a, a parliamentary monarchy, starting with having a prime minister and then eventually going through a full reform and getting a constitution. Now, this was for a myriad of reasons, much like most of the monarchies in the world had already begun to shift towards some sort of more democratic system. In part, this was due to demands for reform from both the international community and the members of those societies themselves, and it was also due to the increasing numbers of people. It used to be back in the when, a monarchy would work just fine because there were far fewer people to manage. As groups get larger and more diverse and more complex, different forms of government are, are called for. And I think Zahir Shah saw this and, and definitely uh, you know, felt it in the wind. And they had started shifting around this point. However, it was a rocky start to this, this parliament. The first successive five governments failed to enact the promised reforms that they had built this entire, this entire process off of. And those reforms were, were a, a framework by which to make and regulate political parties, to have multiple well-established well and well-provided for political parties, and to establish provincial and municipal councils to make sure that everybody, even the smallest communities, were being represented and had a voice within the government. These things failed. They, they failed to, to provide the infrastructure or, or really even the, the beginnings of making this sort of thing happen. You, and you had resignations all over the place from this particular government. And the kind of final straw that broke the camel's back was there was a famine, 1971 to 72. And the poor response to this family, the, the, the poor ability to respond to it, left thousands dead. And the country was not happy about this. A government that cannot effectively govern, as we talked about before, doesn't last for long. And so in around 1972, there was a, a growing discontent with this ineffective government and the lack of strong leadership that we had talked about in section one. And this led to the formation of a lot of different political movements kind of centered around the universities, as they often are. And these political movements took all shapes and sizes. Like we had talked about with the Cuban Revolution, it wasn't just communists working in that. You had all sorts of different sources. Even capitalists were represented within the revolutionary forces. And the same was true here. You had a lot of different ideas that were being circulated. Now, Prince Dahoud Khan, somebody we hadn't talked about before, he was a member of this Barakzai dynasty. And he had served as prime minister between 1953 and 1963. However, when this new constitution was enacted in 1964, one of the things in it barred members of the Barakse dynasty from serving in public office, often regarded as a direct slam against Prince Dahoud. And there had been strained relations between himself and the king for quite a while, but that was a, a huge amount of dissent for him uh, came from that move. 
And so he begins to collect followers. He begins to take advantage of this descent and, and kind of bring people to him and, and kind of prepare for an overthrow of sorts. And one of the groups that he began working with was at the time a relatively small and burgeoning group called the PDPA, which was the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan. Now, this was a communist organization that had begun within the, the system, and they wanted to do so off of the Leninist model. There were other communist organizations at the time that were operating off of the Maoist uh, model, but this group was, was Leninist. It was divided into two main factions. Now, there were a lot of other factions, smaller factions within it, but the two big ones, the most influential, were Parcham, which was led by Babrak Karmal, and it was a more moderate version of the, the party, and it was very popular amongst urban and middle-class persons. And their whole method was that they, they believed Afghanistan was way too underdeveloped, industrially speaking, to f form a true Leninist revolution within that, within that kind of framework, and that they should focus on developing a patriotic, anti-imperialist force that would then kind of help them get to a point where they could do this Leninist revolution. The Kalk, on the other hand, were led by Nur Muhammad Taraki and Hafsola Amin. And they were radicals. They were definitely the extremists of the party. And they were very popular in the rural areas at first. And then they kind of transitioned into the military, kind of um, getting, getting supporters within the military. And they desired a classic Leninist revolution, which is by building a tightly disciplined workforce that then is able to kind of work against the government and represent itself. So you have these two portions of this party, this People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, which I will just refer to as PDPA from now on. It's less of a mouthful. So 1973, after this famine and after all these different formations of, of various political groups began, um, King Zahir leaves Afghanistan for a while. He first goes to London to receive some medical treatment, and then he goes on a vacation on an island called Ischia. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And while he's gone, that provides the perfect opportunity. On July 17th, Dahoud Khan and several hundred of his military supporters succeed in a coup within hours and without any sort of significant resistance. The only dead from this were seven police officers who thought that they were an invading force, not that they were a, a domestic force, but thought that they were an invading force and went out and attacked them. They died. And the other one was a tank driver. You may be thinking to yourself, how did a tank driver, bombs or did they, did they move up? No, he went off the side of the road trying to avoid a bus, which could have happened any day. This was a bloodless virtually bloodless coup. And the international community was praised it. They said, that's an ideal coup. If you're going to do a coup, that's the way to do it. And so they were very popular, not just locally, but also internationally. So Dahoud Khan abolishes the monarchy, says no more kings in Afghanistan, and he establishes a republic. Now, he is the leader of the civilian offices and the military offices and just about everything you can think of, but it's still technically a republic and it's intensely popular with the people. One of the doubts 
that the people had that was smoothed over was that in a classic sort of communist revolution, religion has no place. Tradition has no place. These things are replaced by a different sort of ethic, a different sort of cultural focus. So this was the worry among some of the more conservative communities of Afghanistan. But Dahoud Khan assured them that there would be continuity of their religious and cultural heritage, that they could continue practicing their lives in the way that they wanted to. And he didn't adhere to communist ideals in this. And this is something that kind of upset the PDPA because they had supported him getting into office with the understanding that their ideals would probably be represented at some point. But he doesn't adhere to them. He does put some Parcham members into prominent positions at first. But after the assassination of a anti-communist senator or anti-communist minister that looked pretty obvious that he was he was destroyed, killed by one of the communists, the Parcham members are gradually replaced, gradually cycled out. Now, the Kalk faction didn't have enough influence at the time because, again, they were very rurally influenced. So the, the happenings within inside the city were not really within their purview. So they weren't very influential and they didn't get a place in this new government. And this is when they started to transition from being a more rural-based constituency to a military-based constituency. They started actively recruiting far more within the military. So Dehoud rules for a little bit and he is committed to a policy of non-alignment. That means non-alignment with Britain, non-alignment with France, USA, Soviet Russia, any of it. They just want to stay neutral. Of course, because of the proximity and the interest of the Soviet Union, they are attempting to influence the policy, especially the foreign policy of Afghanistan. And Dahoud Khan resists this quite a bit. Again, he wants to have an autonomous country. And all of this seems to be going decently well until the 17th of April, 1978. And at this time, Mir Akbar Khyber who is a high-ranking member of Parcham, dies under mysterious circumstances, probably assassinated. The PDPA, who were already somewhat fearful, because remember that the Parcham uh, faction were being cycled out of their positions, were starting to become distrusted by uh, Dehoud's government, they fear that they're being eliminated. They fear that they're being hunted down by the government, and they briefly unite. They put aside their differences and say, hey, we've got a bigger problem ahead of us, which is exactly what they had done when they got Dahoud Khan into power in the first place. So they come together. And shortly after, there's some anti-government protests at Khyber's funeral. And in response, the state has most of the leaders of the PDPA arrested and just thrown into jail outright. Now, Amin, remember I had mentioned that he was one of the leaders of Kalk, he was, his imprisonment was postponed. And while he was under house arrest, he had time to instruct his officers, the Kalk officers, and the military cells that they had made to prepare for a massive uprising with the aim of overthrowing the government. So that crucial time that he was allowed, meant that he was allowed to get that, that out there. He was allowed to provide warning for folks. And so even though the leaders of this party were imprisoned, they already had a plan in place. These cells that I talk about were autonomous, much like the, the terrorist cells that are operating in most of the world right now, they can function on their own. They don't need to be connected to the central organization in order to function. They, that's just the way they've been trained. That's the way that, that they've kind of been taught how to do things. And it was kind of the same here. You had these cells within the army that were autonomous, that were kind of 
operating on their own. So when they received this go-ahead, they could just go ahead in the various ways that they, that they could. For instance, there was a tank commander who was secretly a Kalk defector, and he provided uh, in intelligence, air quotes, up the command chain that there was a planned attack on the 27th of April and that provisions should be made in order to prepare for that attack. And one of the provisions that he suggests is that they place the tanks in a perimeter around the palace itself in order to provide protection, of course, to the palace. So when the attack kicked off, those tanks were some of the first to fire at the palace itself. So that did not go well. And then after that, it just became absolute chaos. The army and air force detachments that were controlled by the Kalk uh, began to attack the city and the palace with absolute earnest, uh, basically leveling large sections of the palace. And in the aftermath, Dahoud and most of his family, including the women and children, were assassinated. This was not a bloodless coup. And this one was rather condemned by the international scene because of of how bloody it was and how how much it was against kind of what something that was working. It was kind of working. So for three days, the military ruled. And then a civilian government was established under Taraki, who was one of the big members of Kalk as well, if you recall, with Amin and Kermal, uh, a Parchum representative, were ministers underneath him. And the initial cabinet that they set together was actually pretty fair. There was evenly split between the two factions and there was a decent amount of cooperation. But after the common enemy, Dahoud, had faded from memory, the cohesion quickly dissolved. And three separate go governments were formed within that one government, each along party lines aligned to a, a different minister or, or a different, yeah, all over the place. So it was, it was very complicated and it wasn't to live for very long. Factionalism does not last for very long. Peace does not, it's not possible if you've got factionalism occurring. So Amin, clever as he is, maneuvers to have army officers who were previously excluded from party membership to be elevated to pull full party members. Now he had opposed this before, presumably because there were more Parcham within the military than there were Kalk. But after this very aggressive uh, recruiting campaign that they had gone on, they actually outnumbered the Parchum. And so at this point, Amin's like, yeah, sure, we can include them in the party, which means that they can have a voice within what goes on. And in this process, the Kalk were portrayed as victors, as the heroes of the revolution, whereas the Parchum were portrayed as petty opportunists. They didn't actually do anything. They didn't participate in the revolution. They were just, they're just hanger-ons. They're just riding the coattails, trying to, to benefit from something that they didn't earn. And this takes root. People start to listen to this. And eventually, Amin convinces the Central Committee, which is the ruling body of a communist party, uh, to give the Kalk exclusive abilities to make and enforce policy. That completely makes the Parchum irrelevant. What's the point of being there if they can't actually do anything or have an influence on the way things are happening? And in this process, Karmal is effectively exiled. He's made the ambassador to Czechoslovakia. So he's gone. And there's a coup in planning, a Parchum coup in planning, but it is discovered and a purge of the Partrum begins. And that's exactly what you think it is. A lot of dying. So following up on that, Taraki 
enacts some very abrupt reforms that are deeply unpopular. Remember, this is a very proud country, very traditional, very conservative country. So these changes that just came, there was no tester. There was no way to kind of gauge how the population would respond. They didn't do this in a localized area in order to make sure that their plan was going to work. They just dove right in. He changes the national flag to match one that is nearly identical to the Soviet. That upsets people. Because again, they have, they've had a strong natural identity or national identity. Remember, Dahoud was committed to this non-alignment. And that was something that Afghanistan had had for quite a long time. So this idea of subverting yourself to another power did not go well with them, did not sit well. There were also usury laws that were enacted and that really hit hard in the countryside. There were some very unfair credit practices going on between the farmers and different middlemen, but it worked. It was a system. And when they disrupted that system with anti-usury laws, they didn't put another one in place. There was no, there was no backup for that. And so what happened was a lot of agricultural distress. There was a crisis, agricultural crisis that came out of this. So you've got lack of food, which never is good. Women were granted full equality. And for most of us listening from, um, quote unquote, first world countries, women having full equality is something that's been there for at least a hundred years. It's not something that's surprising to us. But again, this is a place that is deeply committed to its traditional values. And whether or not we agree with them or disagree with them, this was something that really upset a lot of folks, especially the rural folks. And then there were the beginnings of the political executions, the executions of people who didn't agree, people who were standing in the way of progress. So imams and traditionalists of any sort were rounded up into camps and or killed. So these deeply unpopular reforms are kind of compounded with a government that is inflicting terror upon its citizens unless they comply with what, it is, what they're trying to do. So this is not good. This cannot persist either. This is not a legitimate form of leadership. The people do not see these reforms as reflecting who they are, as being beneficial to them. And therefore, the leadership of Taraki cannot be effective. So... His and Amin's relationship deteriorates. Again, at first, it's very good. They, they're operating well together. They're kind of vibing. But after a while, there's a personality cult that is built around Taraki, and Amin just cannot stand it because Taraki begins to believe his own legend, begins to believe himself larger than life, to be some sort of Superman. And so he maneuvers to have Taraki demoted. And eventually has him assassinated. This demotion kind of comes over a period of time and it's through, again, the Central Committee. If you haven't noticed, Amin is extremely good at maneuvering himself politically to get into a, a place of advantage. And this assassination, however, is not taken well. Again, the international community sees right through it and it is not something that is really accepted. And there are a lot of other countries nearby, Soviets included, who take note of this kind of behavior, these tactics. So Amin is eventually made leader, but he is not popular with the populace. He has not won their approval. He does not have their mandate in any way, and they do not like him. And there is an increased level of opposition to communism 
because of all these reforms that we had talked about, because of the, the violation of these traditions and the, the changing of everything in their country very abruptly, and uh, he loses control of the, 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 the rural areas. They begin to become unmanageable. They just don't want to cooperate. In addition to this, he is unable to enforce his rule because there are just mass desertions from the military. And that weakens it considerably. It takes time to train people up and get them equipped. And so if you're constantly hemorrhaging people, it can be hard to get anything done. And then under Amin, or Amin the polit political killings increased. And so did the imprisonments. And so you just have a, a not happy populace who are already brewing, who have had these revolu several revolutions after each other that have just kind of gotten progressively worse from their, from their perspective. They've just gotten progressively worse. This whole time, however, remember our friend Carmel of the Parchum, he has been using his time as, uh, as being abroad to communicate with other Eastern Bloc countries and other Eastern Bloc leaders. And of course, this whole time, he's advocating for the removal of Amin. So eventually, the Soviets make a plan for this. They want to remove him. They want to install Karmal, who's going to be a bit more open to their suggestions and a bit more controlled than what has been going on there. But Amin, bless him, he trusted the Soviets till the very end. He assumed that they... They had his back. Like their, their relationship was not doing very well, but he still had faith that the Soviet Union had his back. And he got warnings. He got warnings from his intelligence staff and from his outlying folks being like, the Soviets are planning something. The Soviets are marching on the Capitol. And he just simply would not believe it. He could not countenance the fact that he was being betrayed in this way. And he remained obstinate until the moment they assassinated him and installed Karmal as the leader. Now that brings us up to where we were last episode. That brings us up to April 79, where larger parts of Afghanistan are in open rebellion. And the reasons for this, as we kind of discussed in the uh, first section, the government increasingly failed to provide internal security. They couldn't provide the basics at all. There was absolutely no genuine or effective authority. All of this authority that had been coming about was all for the personal aggrandizement. Dahoud may have been argued to be doing things maybe for the best for Afghanistan, but it cannot be argued that he wasn't trying to maneuver against the king at the time because of their animosity. And so this rulership that began after these revolutions was not either of these things. It was motivated by personal means, by ambitions, and so there was no way that it could be. The eight proper agencies were not used for good purpose. There was no positive influence exerted, and the relations between these different agencies was bad from the get-go. Again, the Parcham and the Kalk only cooperated when they had a common enemy to go against. Otherwise, they were at each other's throats. This factionalism tears things apart and leaves room for these seeds of insurgency to fester. So this was the fertile soil by which the insurgency, the Mujahideen, were started in Afghanistan. We're going to go into a little bit more of this next time, but this is kind of the framework and the background as to why the insurgency began in the first place. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. 
If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earverm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. <laughs>